0: Last week was kind of a bummer. Last week was kind of a bummer of a Sunday school class. Uh, If you were looking to be inspired, I don't think last week's lesson was the lesson for you. But I have hope for you because this week we're going to talk about the Reformation. We're out of the doldrums of the Middle Ages, if you felt like those were doldrums. And we're moving forward. We're moving toward the light, as it were. Um, So... Uh, The Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was as much about reform of worship as it was about the church's doctrine of salvation. I think oftentimes we think to ourselves, when we think about the Reformation, we think, ah, um, the Reformation was about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, you know, we know the story of Luther. We know the story of Luther's struggles with his own conscience. We know of the struggle that Luther had to be able to stand before God and to have a clear conscience and How he couldn't find it in the ceremonies of the Roman Catholic Church. He couldn't find it in the rules and in the ceremonies and in the structures that they had put in place for him. He could only find it through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And of course, you know the story, I think most of us know the story of Luther's struggle uh, when it came to the doctrine of justification and the gospel as Paul preached it in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. Um. The recovery of the gospel was central to the Reformation, um, but the application of the gospel took place largely within the liturgy. So, you know, what happens to the liturgy of of the church? You know, we've seen in the the previous chapters or in the previous weeks what happens to the, the service in the Roman church. I'm going to just let you guys contribute a little bit here. In fact, somebody told me, they, uh, Micah said he set up a mic. So maybe when you guys speak, those online will actually hear it this time. Describe to me what the worship has become by the end of the Middle Ages that we need the Reformation. What are some of the things that you noticed maybe last week or the week before? What's going on in the worship of the Middle, Age, Middle Ages? It's all in Latin. Yeah. Alright, so, so people don't know what they're saying. Alright. So you have sort of obscure services that people have trouble seeing through. Oh. Um, they don't get to understand the word. That, yes. Yeah. Let's see. What else? Dry. Dry ritualistic. So you have a lot of ritual. I mean it's all ritual, right? Um largely. It's work centered. Okay, so it's it's centered on what you can do it's centered very much on well say these prayers go through these motions make sure you eat the mass or at least watch someone eat the mass right larry i'm just going to say it, it's moved away from the centrality of the word into uh, almost, uh rituals have been mentioned, things like that. yeah ritualism rises to the surface yeah holly In, instead of christ as your interest you have the church and the priests mm-hmm. as the intercessor for the common person. Yeah, you have other people than you can approach God, right? Mm-hmm. It's someone else will do this for me, whether it's the priest or Mary or somebody. I'm going to go to somebody, but I'm not going to go to God myself. Right, John? They uh, insisted I crucifying Christ at every mass again and again. So you have? Mm-hmm. Christ down that off the cross. That's why could we put it this way although this is simplifying it a little the sufficiency of Christ is not embraced maybe we could put it that way right the because there's always a need for him to be re-sacrificed there is still work yet to be done I mean, that whole concept is just top Mhm Mm. People don't need to read the Bible for themselves. They're certainly not being encouraged to. In fact, you have guys like Jan Hus, you have Wycliffe, where you're being punished for having the Bible in your own language. Um, nobody wants to be a Wycliffe, right? That's even amongst the clergy. Yeah, even amongst the clergy, you have, you have, uh, you have a lectionary, and you stick to that, really. So you, what you start to see is, though, by the end of, by the, end of the 1400s, it's a dark period. It's a dark period for, as far as gospel light goes, and so what needs to happen is the, the liturgy itself has become a way of teaching what the church values the most, and what the church starts to. If you were look at the 1400s and you were look at the early 1500s and say, was the church value most? You'd say the church values ritual. The church values making sure at least somebody in the room knows what they're doing, uh, but that's they're they're happy to kind of let it stay there in many respects. Now later on, they end up correcting this, you know, or at least in their minds they end up correcting this. But you are getting to a point where something's got to give, something has to happen, and so you have the Reformation. I won't retell you the story of the Reformation. That's not my plan here today. But here's what happens. Luther, in 1517, nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Church door. I'll move this out even a little further. To the Wittenberg Church door. And at that time, John Calvin is, I think, nine years old. So he's just a little boy. Uh, he is himself in college. But while he is in college, while he's at the university, the, the gospel is being proclaimed from Germany. And the ideas of Luther are very big in the universities. People are interested in them. Now that doesn't mean that you don't get get in big trouble for promoting or believing in Luther's ideas. Calvin ends up of course fleeing from France where he's uh, going to university and he decides I'm going to flee east. I'm going to go somewhere where I can get away from these from the troubles of persecution. And his plan is to go to Strasbourg. But on his way he stops over in Geneva and the rest, of course, is history. He ends up basically being threatened with a curse from God if he goes any further. God, he, uh, I think it's uh, Pharrell tells him that God is going to curse your studies in Strasbourg if you selfishly go there and spend your life in the cloister uh, just reading and studying and producing books. And so Calvin feels he's bound to stay there in Germany. And so you end up with these different streams of. Of that, that sort of break out of the Reformation. On the far, I'm going to say the far left wing of the Reformation, you have the Anabaptists. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the Anabaptists much because they are not as much of an influence, I think, on us as the idea of the Reformed and Lutheran traditions. But the Anabaptist tradition, uh, very well known for rejecting, um, oh, boy, how do I summarize the Anabaptists? <laughs> The An- you might think of the Anabaptists and think of Baptists. Like if you have Baptist lanes, you might think, well, I'm over here. Most Baptists I know are not over here. What you have over here is uh, you know, the Mennonite tradition. You have the, um, uh, you have the, the Quakers. You have uh, Church of the Brethren, friends. Um, those would be more what you would think of when you think of Anabaptists. Now, obviously, they insisted on baptizing anyone who converted, uh, rebaptizing them, they in other words rejected the ba- uh, infant baptism. They rejected the baptism of Rome. Um, so that's what you you might if you have Baptist leanings, you might think, well, these are my people. I, I really don't think that's the case. I actually think you're going to find more similarities in the Reformed and in the Lutheran traditions. And so, by and large, we are going to fo- see here the Anabaptists are ready to reject tradition, and they don't they don't necessarily need to be seen as part of. <laughs> The church that came before they basically see themselves as saying we need to restart the church. And then if you were to go to the reformed, uh, if you were to go to the reformed and the Lutherans, the reformed and Lutherans would say we're continuations of what God was already doing. We're not starting a new church. We're reforming the church. And that's why they, you know, they like the terminology of reformed. They are not starting something new. They are continuing what God was already doing and they're reforming it. They're healing it. In their minds. Um, Anabaptists did other things. Like they rejected. Some of them rejected uh, sacraments altogether. Things like that. Yeah, Micah. Uh, You have three strands there. (laughs) You have the heading Reformation. You started this talking about the Reformation not being simply doctrinal. But a Reformation of worship. Would you consider that the Anabaptists, the Reformed, and the Lutherans. Would all be considered having primarily a reformation of worship, or is that a reformed distinctive that may not be a Lutheran distinctive in the same way? May not be Baptist distinctive in the same way. So, I'm actually going to talk about the distinctives between these. So, I want to talk about the similarities and the differences between the Reformed and the Lutheran, because that's relevant to us. It's going to be very relevant to us. So, um, yeah, John. Uh, mentioning what, what was the Catholic Church really looking at in terms of what were their values. I think two, two major things that they did. In the, around the year, one, around 1000, they eliminated, totally eliminated and banned marriage for the clergy. So that inheritance would stay within the church. And then at the time of Luther, you had indulgences where you could pay to sin. So yeah. both of these are financial decisions that the church makes. Uh, 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 sure. Uh, well, right. I no, know, I know. It's just a, it's <laughs> the They're all about the you know. yeah. yeah, Larry. Uh, I think one of the other major distinctions that I picked up in my own studies uh, was that one of the key transitions is they, the Roman church began to teach and believe that the church itself bestowed salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That they weren't just messengers yes. of the gospel. Yeah. But that salvation came through the church authoritatively, not through the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, They're, they are where all of the merit of of Christ is stored up and they dispense it, essentially. Yeah. So I want to talk about the things that the Reformed and the Lutherans – I don't mean to erase the Anabaptists, but I do. So I'm going to just, we're not going to talk about them. We're going to talk about the Reformed and the Lutherans. Um, I want to talk about the similarities, the things that liturgically the Reformed and the Lutherans have in common. Um, The first is this word-centered liturgies. If you were to go to either a Lutheran church or a Reformed church, you would see that the Bible was read in the common tongue, that the Bible was prayed, that the Bible was sung, and that the Bible was preached. You would find that in common in all of these churches and again, isn't it upsetting that that's considered reform? Yes. Like, it, you know, just showing where you came from, that this is, we need to make the Bible and God's word the center of what we do in our worship. And for the Reformed and the Lutherans, that was that was a huge thing to do. That was a massive change uh, in the service. Another thing that they have in common is the centrality of the preached word. In both of these settings, the preached word occupies center space of the service. Um, There is a focus on preaching as sort of the thing around which the rest, almost like the hub on the wheel as far as the service goes. So there are things that happen before. There are things that happen after. The things happening before really are leading up to the preaching of the word. The things that happen after are happening in response to the preaching of the word. So if you really, I think the hubs on a wheel are at least one illustration maybe of how the Reformed and the Lutherans both thought about the preaching of the word. Um, they believed that in the preaching of the word, God himself comes into our midst and preaches to us, that God himself comes to us and instructs us. He himself comes and preaches a sermon. Jesus comes and preaches a sermon to us in the preaching of the word. And that was why they emphasized the importance of solid exposition of scripture, right? Because insofar as scripture is rightly preached, God Himself has preached. God Himself has spoken. So that when you hear the preached word faithfully preached, you're hearing from the Lord. You could say, Thus saith the Lord. Um, they also had other liturgical elements in common. They had the Lord's Prayer. Now, you had some Reformed churches where they wouldn't say the Lord's Prayer. Um, we'll talk more about that when we get to the Puritans. Funny thing is, I don't know if we'll actually get that far. I think our Sunday school may stop before we actually get to finish the series. So we may have to wait through the summer or something to finish it. I don't know. We'll go as far as we can. Um, But they they would have the Lord's Prayer uh, that they would recite. They would recite creeds. Again, Lutheran and Reformed, these are similarities. They would recite creeds in public. They would recite the Nicene Creed. They recited the Athanasian Creed. They recited the Apostles' Creed. And there was a very – well, there were two important reasons why they did this. One was they biblically argued that in Scripture you find creeds being shared in the church, that you find illustrations of creeds taking place and being shared and publicly confessed. But the other thing was this. They were, unlike the Anabaptists, very concerned to be understood that they weren't radicals. They weren't starting a new church. What were they doing? They are reforming it. So they wanted part of the way they showed that, hey, we're part of the church that's come before us. What would they do? They would recite these creeds just like the church has always done. It was their way of reclaiming that ground. Um, that's why they kept the same creeds, even, even creeds that we struggle with, right? And we do this today. We, we say the Apostles' Creed even though it uses the word Catholic Church in it. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I have gotten plenty of questions from people who were like, why don't you just change it to Christian church? The the reformers were very insistent that they are the church. They are a continuation of the church that came before. They reformed the church and that Roman Catholics don't get to own the word Catholic because Catholic means universal. This is Jesus's church and keeping even the Catholic church language in the creed was a way of saying Rome doesn't own this. We are a part of what came before. Now, the, the, the Anabaptists, on the other hand, rejected the use of creeds. Um, they do end up creating their own systematic theologies. I do think you can find some examples, some sporadic examples of Anabaptist creeds. Um, but largely, they rejected those sort of things in favor of something a little more free-spirited. I'll use that word, free-spirited. Um, they were, they were convinced that the Bible says that we should share our confession of faith together and they were convinced that they were part of the church before and that's why they included the recitation of creeds. They also would do, both of them would do public confession of sin. Both would do prayers of intercession during the service. Both would have a benediction at the conclusion of the service. All of these are things that the Lutheran and the reforms have in common. Um, Oh, and let me just say something else that they have in common. A big emphasis on the completed work of Christ. You can read Lutheran preaching, you can read Reformed preaching, and you are gonna get good food there. You're gonna see an emphasis on Jesus as central. You're gonna see the preaching of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. But there are differences, and they're not necessarily small differences. You would know pretty quickly If you went into a Lutheran church or a reformed church, the first difference is this fixed versus free worship. Um, What do I mean by that? Luther encouraged freedom and variety in adapting his liturgy in each context. Calvin, on the other hand, Calvin, on the other hand, well, his Genevan liturgy was largely fixed except for two exceptions. The preacher's prayer for illumination before the sermon was different each time. And the opening prayer during the weekday services. Other than these two, these two uh, features, each service would largely be the same. You'd have different songs. You'd have different scriptures. You'd have different sermons. But you wouldn't modify the order of service very much. You would keep things very, very much sort of locked in. And you just vary. It's kind of like us, right? We have like you can you can guess what's going to be on page three of the bulletin. Usually, you can guess what's going to be on page eight of the bulletin, right? Um, and that's kind of what Calvin services were like. And then Luther's services they could vary very widely. He could include things, he could exclude things, he could leave things out, he could put things in. Um, and there was a lot more freedom from the from the Lutheran side. There's also similarities. There are structural similarities too, but. You know, if you're painting with a broad brush, that's one thing that you see. Fixed versus free worship. Another difference between the Lutheran and the Reformed would have been congregational participation. Um, All congregations sang, unless you were in Zurich. If you were in Zurich, uh, Ulrich Zwingli's church, they did not sing. They just read scriptures. They would just read the Psalms. Um, they didn't sing. They, they, they loved music. We'll talk a little more about music uh, in the churches. But um, all the congregations sang and participated in the service. Um, most congregations participated in the service by, by praying. Um, some churches had the minister doing the whole service, reading the scripture. They would not have responsive readings in some churches. Um, sometimes the congregation would do very little except for singing. Um, and then, and you know, you see this too, right? If you go to a one Presbyterian church, you might find that they have a lot of responsive readings, a lot of congregational participation. And then you have others, I think reflecting a little bit more of the Puritan tradition that basically said, uh, we should be silent except for singing. Um, the minister does everything basically except for the singing and the service. Um, but again, we'll talk more about that if we, if, and when we eventually get to the Puritans. Um, So congregational participation would vary. There are differences there. Frequency of communion. You can probably guess. We still see this today, right? Um, Luther, Martin Bootser, Thomas Cranmer. He was with the Anglicans. um, They had weekly communion. They believed in weekly communion. Uh, Calvin wanted weekly communion. But there was an authority in the city of Geneva that was the city council. And... Some people sometimes imagine Geneva as this place where John Calvin got his way and he ran that place with an iron fist. You should not believe it. Um, Calvin wanted weekly communion in his church. He wanted weekly communion in his services. He talked about it in his writings, but the city council of Geneva did not want weekly communion in Geneva. Can anybody guess why? Why would they not? Why would the city council not want weekly communion? yeah I don't, I don't they, they never use that as an excuse but you know good I mean maybe it's a factor who knows if you have weekly communion and you excommunicate someone it hurts a lot more because every week they're being denied the table and guess what happens if you only have it four times a year the sting is a lot less powerful, right? Um, At least that's the way the city council saw it. And what they didn't want was for the ministers and churches of Geneva to have too much power. And so they said, we will deny you the powerful ability to deny people the Lord's table on a weekly basis. Instead, you have the power to deny people the table on a quarterly basis. So very political thinking, a very, very political mindset, right? There's something too, too, too potent about being able to deny them the table each week. Um, But Calvin wanted it. Yeah, Carolyn. Was this the time when they instigated the, uh, they had to go and have confession before they went to communion and get a token to take? That would have been during the Scottish seasons. Um, That would have been during the Scottish communion seasons. Um, I do not know of other branches of the Reformed Church using tokens. If somebody knows it better, they I could tell me. Communion tokens from my mother's upbringing, and I, I wondered if this. Yeah, was. probably. Is that does she have a Scottish background? Yeah, and in Scotland they had to do that because they didn't have enough ministers to administer the Lord's Supper each week. So the ministers who could administer the supper would go to one location, and everyone, a lot of people, would come from various churches, and they would do it together. Um, they wouldn't know the people. Huh? And they, wouldn't know the people. they wouldn't know the people, and so they would have to trust the ruling elders in the church they were from. That's why the tokens existed, because the people administering often didn't know them. Um, I remember one year at General Assembly, I, I don't remember if it was Brian Chappell or who it was, but he, he used the communion token as a way of, of preaching against works righteousness, and I think he misunderstood radically what the whole point of the token system was. but... But maybe we get to that, maybe we don't, I don't know. Um, but Calvin wanted weekly communion. Zwingli and Bollinger only had it four times a year. John Knox wanted monthly communion, but he established communion four times a year in Scotland. Um, I don't know why he did it four times a year when he wanted it monthly. Um, probably need to study that more if I was going to give an answer. Um, From his time in Geneva? <laughs> So he was influenced when he went to Geneva then? Okay, so he made the change at some point. So church discipline is part, of the, is part of the equation, right? Frequent observance means excommunication is more painful. The church plays a role in the self-examination that is called for in the supper. That's why notorious sinners would be excluded from the supper. They would be told, you may not participate. Um, so here's another difference. Oh, yeah, Jake. So if someone's excommunicated, what are they doing being in church? They still have to go. You still have to go, but you have to. I mean, remember, this is a time where people are required to go to church and every political context is different. My understanding is everyone has to go in Geneva. So you've got people gritting their teeth. You know, hearing the preaching of the word, sometimes you would have quite an, you know, imagine the diverse audience you'd have if everyone in Portland had to come to church here, right? (laughs) If everybody within, uh, you know, two miles of this church had to come here, you could imagine how well received some of the preaching would be. I mean, just imagine like, just imagine the the kind of like opposition you might face when you're preaching. It would be a very different environment. (laughs) Um, So here's another difference. Physical practices, gestures, vestments. Um, Physical uh, practices were significant. Some of them were most obviously different. Um, One of the physical differences would be the placement of the table for the Lord's Supper. That would vary between the Lutheran and the Reformed. Um, Luther kept the traditional location and name of the altar. So he didn't have a table. They had an altar. So an altar is stone, right? And... In the Roman Catholic Church, you have the chancel, which is the back wall, and the altar is built into the wall during the the Middle Ages. And so what happens when you administer the supper? Well, you can't stand behind it, right? So the minister comes, and he stands with his back to the congregation, and he performs the ceremony. With Luther, he keeps the altar, but he does move it so that the minister stands behind it. We'll talk a little more about the the Lutheran approach here in a minute. I have some quotes from Luther. Um, But the placement of the table was different. Um, Zwingli and Cranmer, they replaced the stone altar with a movable wooden table um, with the minister standing behind the table. Um, Bootser had the minister stand in front of the table facing the people. So I don't know how you would minister. I guess you have to turn around at some point, but Bootser would come and stand physically here. Um, Cranmer had the minister stand to the side of the table. Right, so you're commun- you're not communicating that you are standing between the people of God. Cranmer was uh, very concerned that people not think I've got to get through this guy to get to the table. Um, everything you do communicates something. Um, John Alasco had ministers, elders, and deacons stand like a wall in front of the table. Um, while the preaching minister exhorted and admonished the congregation from the pulpit, so there's a physical, uh, a physical, visible church discipline taking place each time the Lord's Supper was administered in that church. So you can see the variety of, of ways that it could be done and the different things that are being communicated by, by doing that. Um, yeah, Eric. Um, so you give me all these examples here. What examples do we have of uh, the early church? To table, no table, people standing, we don't really have any, well, do have any description on how the early church did communion. Um, the, I'm trying to remember, if I had the wording in front of me, I could read it to you. Do you remember when we were quoting from uh, Justin Martyr? Justin Martyr gives his rather lengthy description of the service. And if I remember correctly, Justin Martyr speaks of a table on which the bread and the wine are sat. Um, and so I think early evidence is there certainly was a table that was used the idea is that the lord's supper is meant to still follow the model that jesus jesus sets in the new testament um so yeah it's interesting their move back to a table is a move back toward more of the new testament practice the move toward the altar what is it a move toward yeah your old old testament sacrificial model and of course we know that an altar is a place that sacrifices take place well theologically that's what the mass was by the middle ages you know it was a sacrifice so there's always something being communicated by church architecture i don't know how i don't know if if i'm going to talk about this later or not but the placement of a pulpit changes what you're saying about the room in the roman service have you have you been to a roman church where is the altar with the with the with the elements where does it sit it's prominent. It's in the center. It's at the center of what's going on. Where's the pulpit? The pulpit's on the side. The pulpit's on the side. It's not, you're not really here. What is it saying? Maybe in an exaggerated way. You are not here for the preached word. You are here for the blood and the body. Um, the Reformed churches, what do they do? They physically move the pulpit back to the center. Not all of them. Some of them have churches that they've inherited And they are architecturally never going to be able to, you know, you would have to rearrange the room and oftentimes they did, but a lot of them keep the pulpit right where it was. Um, Many of them keep the sign of the cross. The Lutherans, for example, keep the sign of the cross. Um, Cranmer stops the act of physically breaking bread and pouring the cup. Um, Zwingli's liturgy keeps both, breaking the bread, pouring the cup. Um, people receive the Lord's Supper elements in various positions. Some are sitting, some are standing, some are kneeling. In Zurich, people didn't sing, and so they received the Lord's Supper in sober silence. If you were to go to, uh, if you were to go to uh, Zwingli's church, that's the way they did it. They didn't sing at all. They just passed them out, and everyone sat quietly. Before um, Martin Luther and all this, is he? Is he you know, before this, is just. This... This is practice. after Luther, and um, we will talk more specifically about Luther's practices. I was curious how Luther uh, felt about you know, all these things that were happening in the Lutheran church and why it's named after him. In light of yeah, practice. what the Lutherans end up doing is very much in keeping with Luther's approach. So, I'll, again, I'll, I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. Clerical attire. Luther kept clerical garb, provided—this is a quote from him—provided that pomp and splendor are absent. Now— I don't know. Like I've seen some Lutheran outfits that look pretty pomp and splendorous, (laughs) splendid to me. Um, But Luther is very flexible on the issue. He does not have strong feelings on, on dress. Yeah, Eric. Because uh, it seems like there's so many restrictions. I, I think that's going to be one of those illustrations of something where there are differences. Um, in Reformed history, here's what you largely have. You largely have an insistence that participants in the Lord's Supper are to be of age and are to make a profession of faith before they can participate. Now, there, there are examples of young communion There are even examples in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you certainly have this, of children, infants participating in communion. And you do have this, I think, what I would call a minority stream in the Reformed Church where you have children participating who are unable to actually make a profession. Now, it's so minority that you have more today who want to do that. And they they have only a couple of guys that they can grasp hold of in order to say, hey, look, this is our this is this is our forefather. This is somebody who did this. Okay, I guess so. I was wondering in the, the Catholic tradition if that was something that was also reformed like, you know, you had to be just maybe Twenty five. I don't you know right I don't now? know of any set age I don't know of any set ages. I know that in practice sometimes that can end up happening. Um, I remember in Mississippi there was a church where they had just decided it was 12 years old and once you're 12, you can partake. Well, every kid in the church that hits 12 years old is going is expected to to go and talk to the elders whether they're ready to or not. Uh, sometimes it's way after they're ready. They would have been ready if they'd let nine-year-olds or eight-year-olds. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of variety. There's there's downsides if you end up picking an age or something like that. So yeah, they So I, I can't remember because... Uh... <clears throat> Do you have to participate in confirmation or Lutheran church per- before you participate in communion? Yeah, they believed in confirmation, yeah. So So yeah, the American Lutheran So so as far as clerical garb goes, Luther doesn't care. He doesn't care. Luther wants to be able to preach the gospel. He does not he is not concerned about what the minister is wearing. Um in Geneva they wear black academic gowns. Um, this is intentional. The plan is to indicate ministers are teachers of the word rather than mediators between God and the people. And so that's what I wear on Sundays. I wear a black gown. And the point of that is that it is – it's meant to eliminate the personality, right? I have no personality when I'm preaching. I have all my personality right now, see? Um, The idea is to erase the person and instead the book uh, itself, which is being read and proclaimed, is what's meant to come to the fore. Um, That's the idea. So it's meant to sort of – the person recedes and what comes forward is the word. The book that's being opened and read, it's being taught. And in doing that, if you do it faithfully, God himself is preaching. Um, There's my defense of why I wear a gown. Um, In Zurich and Scotland, the minister dress was less formal than in Geneva. Ministers wore, quote unquote, ordinary yet respectable clothing, not theatrical. Um, You might think of it the equivalent today being like a suit jacket, right? You would wear a suit, something nice, but not not too weird. Um, In Scotland, though, eventually the Geneva gown becomes the norm. In England, it was argued that clerical vestments are audiophora. That is something that's neither here nor there, something that's neutral, And yet, it eventually ends up being required. So, so much for audiophora. It's audiophora until it's not. Um, Let's talk about Lutheran worship. We've got five minutes, so I get a little ways through Lutheran worship. Lutheran worship. The Virgin Mary and the saints cease to have a presence in the service as objects of prayer or veneration in the Lutheran service. Services in Lutheran churches are conducted in the lingua franca, in Germany's case, what are they going to do the services in? German, German right? Um, worship was seen as congregational and not passive, not observational. You're not watching someone else worship. Um, because of the priesthood of all believers, which Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2.9, the whole congregation is, a, is seen in Lutheranism as a priestly body. And so they should participate in corporate worship. No more passive observing. And calling that worship. Um, vocal participation in the service by the people. So congregation sings the Lord's Prayer. They sing the creeds. Um, and they sing the Ten Commandments. Um, prayer books are used to allow congregants to pray along and understand what's being said. Right? No more of these services where you can't quite hear what the person up front saying. And then you as a, and the person in the pews just say, well, the important thing is that he's, he knows what he's saying. It's like, no, you as a congregant are supposed to understand. So what do they do? They give them prayer books with the prayers written in there. So even if you can't hear them, you can still follow along. What's the rate of literacy, good? The, the rate of literacy uh, in Germany, especially, skyrockets with, after Luther. Because Luther's hot stuff, right? And if you want to be able to read all the stuff that he's putting out, you need to be able to read. So you actually see, um, I have this book called Brand Luther. And in it, it just goes through and shows the ways that that uh, the Reformation blazes uh, literacy through Europe. Yes. You, you, after a while, you can't be. What's that? Book prices drop printing press. Yes, no. book prices drop, um, but the uh, and but um, yeah, education ends up becoming hugely important in German territories. Yeah. Didn't Luther design the road? There's. Uh, something he designed that he would go out and teach his congregants how to read hmm. and I think it was like the Lutheran Rose had something to do with the way he taught people hmm. I don't know yeah, about that he was cool <laughs> um, so The people are participating. They they reintroduce weekly Lord's Supper. Both elements are given to the worshipers, right? Not just the bread. They don't withhold the cup from people. They give them the bread and the cup. Here's what Luther does. Luther keeps whatever he can stand to keep from the Roman Catholic worship. If If he can bear it, then he'll do it. Um, he only wants to bring as much change as he thinks he has to, in order to be able to preach the word and get the doctrine of justification taught to these people. Um, he used well. Why did he want to? Ah, we will talk about the two differences um, in in worship. Yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, it won't take till summer. Um, but there is there are two different uh, views when it comes to whether or not. Something as long as so there's two views. One is the uh, the reformation view, the reform view, which is you only do that which God commands in Scripture. And then you have the normative principle that Luther held to essentially if God's word doesn't forbid it, then give it a shot, you know. And so Luther's got a way more open perspective on what can be allowed in worship. So um, he keeps what he can. So what's he keep? He uses the medieval Catholic liturgy. Only thing he changes is the mass. Um, he retains the church lectionary, the reading schedule. Um, he gives a high place to communion and worship. Um, kept nearly the same service as medieval Catholicism with three exceptions. The church service is now in German. He replaces the mass with Luther's own communion liturgy. And exalts preaching to the central central position in worship. He, yeah. Yeah. Are the the elements literally the body and blood of Christ? No. So in Lutheranism, uh, Luther's view is what's called consubstantiation. Mm -hmm. It's not Calvin's view that Christ is spiritually present in the supper. Instead, think of it like Christ is present alongside of the bread and the cup. Um, So in Lutheranism, they will talk about it in ways that sound way more... Roman, then I as a reform minister would talk about it. Um, Luther, you know, Luther and the reformers furiously disagreed on the the way to understand the presence of Jesus in the supper. Um, except for Zwingli, they all agreed Christ is present in the supper. But how is He present? Well, that's where they, you know, they would tear each other's heads off over. Or in Luther's case, you take off your shoe and bang it on a table. And you just over and over say, This is my body and blood. This is my body and blood. And you keep screaming it until everyone in the room is scared of you and doesn't fight with you anymore. <laughs> yeah, or you pull a dagger out. Yeah. Um, real quickly, I will. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking of going an extra five minutes just so I can kind of wrap this part up. He keeps nearly all the accoutrements of Catholicism, nearly all of the church calendar. He removes saints days that aren't connected to the New Testament. But the whole basic cycle remains in place. Um, Sometimes some of the Lutheran churches after Luther add October 31st as a celebration of Reformation Day. Some of the Lutheran churches observe June 25th as their Reformation Day because that's the day the Augsburg uh, Confession was uh, presented. And so for them, that's Reformation Day. Um, I talked about the altar already. Um, Luther moves it away from the wall, but he he's willing to keep the altar. Um, they keep the candles. They keep the lighting of candles. Uh, Luther keeps the crucifix. Uh, their view of images and statues is very much in keeping with the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the, they, they believe you shouldn't make images of God, but everything else that the Roman Catholic Church has been doing is fine with them. Uh, their Christology allows the image of Jesus on the crucifix. And in their view, that is not an image of God. Um, they use the sign of the cross during prayers, during times of fear, during times of doubt, Uh, priestly robes. I mentioned this already, right? The vestments may unhindered be used when pomp and luxury be avoided, but they should not be dedicated or blessed. Uh, he argued for Christian liberty that it's okay to continue using these things because we're free in Christ. And then, last but not least, this is—I'll have to stop after this. But um, introduced a lot of hymns written by Luther. Luther. Luther wrote a lot of hymns and a lot of songs. We have hymns and songs by Luther in our uh, our own hymnal. Um, no more Latin chant. Um, I'm sure they were very excited to not have any more Latin chant. For Luther, the hymn is a very popular vehicle for conveying truth. And so you can teach, popular, uh, teach doctrine to people at a popular level by having them sing the, sing the doctrine, right? Um, this is the way Arius worked back in the day when he was spreading his, his uh, her, uh, heresy, right? There was a time when Christ was not, and somehow that's a song. Um, children are singing this song, supposedly, and Luther says, "We need the children of the church, we need the people of the church to be able to v- verbally say what it is that God says in his word, and so he, for him, writing hymns is a very important way to do that um, so next time we 'll talk about reformed worship we 'll talk about uh, zwingli luther or Zwingli and Calvin and Bootzer, and how they differ from luther so Maybe just in your mind, keep, keep some of these things that I've mentioned that Luther's willing to keep and watch what happens when, when you have the reformers and you'll see why these are two very distinct schools of, of worship. I just have to stop because we're out of time. Let me pray. And then I don't mind talking more about this. I love the subject. So <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we are free to read your word. Thank you that we are free to preach your word. Thank you that we are free to sing your word. Thank you for giving us your word. And I pray that we would not be those who speak about your word, talk about your word, uh, exalt your word, and yet we don't read it. And yet we don't treasure it. And yet we don't talk about it with others. Um, I pray that we would not be people who simply talk about such things, but that we would really love and treasure them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen.